And then when something goes wrong and the public set about social media and your reputation is in tatters, then where is the communications person? Hello, and welcome back to Marketing Trek, the podcast for professionals with a passion for marketing and communications. My name is Dominic Hawes. I am the Group Chief Executive Officer at Selby Anderson, which is a fast, fast growing marketing services group. For this season of Marketing Trek, we thought we'd shake things up a little bit. Now, cast your mind back to the middle of lockdown. We were using a very cool intent data platform called Science, and we were using it to try and identify what are companies searching for and looking for from marketing online. And from that, we built ourselves a top 10 of the most asked questions about marketing. And then we thought, that kind of sounds like a podcast series. And so season two of Marketing Trek, each subject is one of the top 10 most searched topics during the whole of lockdown. You heard it here first. This is Marketing Trek. On the first episode of this season's Marketing Trek, we're going to be going into the echo chamber and talking about social media. Now, 2022 was a big year for social media. By now, half the global population is on social media. But is that a good or is that a bad thing? Because social media gets many labels. It's been called toxic, misinformative. It's been linked to radicalization and conspiratorial thinking. It's even been linked to younger people having a lower or no sense of self-worth. But despite all these problems, social media can also be a great place to galvanize digital communities. It can be a place of creativity. From a business perspective, it offers many opportunities. So social media is important, that much is true. But let's take some time to evaluate what the issues with social media are for brands and how they can counteract some of those problems. Throughout today's episode, you'll hear me speak to various experts on social media brand reputation management and communications. So let's go inside the echo chamber and see what we can find. Now, later in the episode, you're going to hear me speak to Andy Sutherden. He is a marketing and communications consultant, and he is also a director of SpeakUp and a change management business called iTrust Assurance. And he's going to talk to us about how a good digital reputation starts from within your company. And he also lays out his theory on why communications should be the fifth seat at the boardroom. I'm also going to be speaking to Jeff Watt and Dafina Grapci-Penny from Green Target about how to get ahead of fake news from a brand perspective. But to begin the episode, I sat down with CEO of Convivio, Steve Parks, for an amazing conversation. So let's jump right in. Hello, my name is Steve Parks, and I am the CEO of Convivio. Convivio was a digital agency working with the public sector, but we've evolved as the government has diverged off in one way. We've decided our values don't want to go off in that way. (laughs) So we decided to reinvent ourselves. And one of the things we discovered is that so many agencies hadn't prepared for things like pandemic and Brexit. It wasn't that sort of strategic outlook. They weren't doing that sort of high level management stuff. They're just too much in the day to day. So Convivio now helps agency leaders occupy those top hats in the business, the owner hat, the director hat, and the CEO hat, so that they can run the business in a more structured and planned way and avoid that big roller coaster ride that comes from just being head down, being a practitioner all the time and not running the business enough. Next up, I asked Steve, how would he characterize social media? We see so many examples of negativity and conflict on different social media platforms. 
So I was really interested to see if he sees social media as a toxic echo chamber, kind of as I do. My perspective about social media is people think of it as another media outlet, like a newspaper or a broadcaster or something. And I tend to think of it as like the pub. And it is going down the pub and you can choose to socialize with who you wish and have what discussions you wish. But the other thing that we've got to reflect from that is that in all the pubs, <laughs> there is someone who is always looking for a fight. There's someone who's always spreading very loudly, very misinformed opinions. But a bit differently to a pub, one of the things that's happened is that corporate brands have discovered it. So because it's a pub at scale, it is suddenly worth a big brand turning up there and shouting about stuff. So it's like being in a pub where suddenly <laughs> someone walks in who's the marketing director for McDonald's or something, just starts shouting, have a McDonald's, everyone, have a McDonald's, go and buy a McDonald's, go and buy. And you're just trying to have a conversation in the corner there. So it has that disadvantage. And one of the types of brands that have discovered it more than most are the media companies. And they've discovered the power of it because they've always felt that their role is to be the controller of the national discussion, the national debate. And they always felt quite comfortable in that when they ran a newspaper or a radio station or a TV station. Then social media happened and suddenly they felt like they lost control. And over the years, they've kind of figured out social media and they figured out what presses the right buttons. And the thing they found is they just need to maximize engagement. And so that's what they go for. And it means that even some of the more reputable media brands are going for the stuff that will just get clicks. And what gets clicks is very emotionally reactionary stuff. So the things that make people very angry or very upset or ecstatically happy or laugh like mad or something, and they look for stories that will create that effect. But also when they find a story, they have to mold it into that thing that will get people angry, upset, laughing, whatever. So yes, it's just like a pub, it's a social place, but because it's at scale, it is attractive to people to misuse it and abuse it. And because it's so fast moving, it's fairly easy for them to do that too. I wanted to pick up on Steve mentioning the Daily Mail. It, it's a, I was going to say it's a Marmite publication, uh, but, but Marmite would probably sue me. It's a controversial publication, and I knew that Steve had personal experience with, with it. So l l Steve, tell us the story. There's a conference every year for people who work on public services that are increasingly becoming digital. Although it was hosted in a government building and it's organized by civil servants, it's also open to the private sector. And I, at that time, ran an agency that served the public sector. And so I went along there and I took part in the discussions. And the thing you notice is that these discussions are at a very high quality level because these are people who are really invested and really care about the subject that they're going to discuss. They really care about good public services. But what it means is that people put challenges to these groups. And one of the challenges that came up at the last couple of years conference was, if we're a civil servant and we're told to do something illegal, what should we do? But also me as a former journalist was able to bring into the discussion, well, what about some of the role that other parties play in this? And so what I was raising at the conference was, is the media holding government to account enough? Is it seeing the wrongdoing, seeing potential law breaking? And is it acting on those things? And my 
position is it's not doing that enough. There are elements, but broadly it's not doing that enough. And so I brought that into the discussion. What happens because it's an open event, and there are notes taken at the meeting, and those are publicly available. So cut to about three months ago, suddenly the Daily Mail contact the organizer of the conference at 3pm on a Saturday afternoon. And if a newspaper like the Daily Mail contacts you at 3pm the day before publication for your response to something, you basically know they're trying to screw you over because that's as late as they can go towards having to (laughs) finalize the story and put it to bed. They're giving you the minimum amount of time to seek any legal advice or be able to counter it or be able to seek an injunction or anything like that. So the organizers responded back. The Daily Mail said, we've got this story that civil servants are uprising against the government, etc. And uh, they just blew it out of all proportion, of course, and said, we're going to run this and we're going to name this civil servant who's one of the organizers and pin it all on her. Wow. And so the organizer, of course, very stressed by this. If they had done something wrong, they could lose their jobs over it, or if they were even seen to have done something wrong. So they then let the attendees know, look, there is this thing, it's coming out in the Daily Mail tomorrow, and they're going to have a big criticism of this conference and etc. We've sent them a thing explaining everything, but still they're probably going to publish. And the Daily Mail did publish, and I saw the story when it came out. And the Daily Mail was saying, and a civil servant said this, and a civil servant said that. And I looked at the words and I thought, hang on a minute, those are the things I said at the conference. (laughs) I recognize those words. And so I decided, okay, the organizers, because they're civil servants, they can't publicly stand up and criticize the media and all that thing. They're in a difficult position. And I thought, well, okay, I've got to take this on because the civil servants can't speak out. I know a wrong is being done here. I can speak out. So I'll take this on me and I'll take it back to the Daily Mail. So I decided to do a Twitter thread about this and about what had happened and build that up. And because I'm a former journalist myself, I've still got quite a following of other journalists. So I was able to tweet this out and it got a lot of engagement and amplification, a lot of people discussing it and so on. And it got spread quite widely as a Twitter thread and it became an interesting discussion. So really social media there was a very useful tool for standing up to the traditional press and the power that they have. And then asked Steve if he thought he was you know, specifically targeted by Daily Mail trolls. His answer was fascinating and actually quite shocking. It really gets to the heart of one of the worst things, in my opinion, about social media. So one of the things is I have my Twitter set up to mute low quality replies. A lot of the lobbying groups and a lot of the political interest groups have built up these big operations of combination of sock puppets where it's an account that is managed by real people but pretends to be something other than it is. You can see looking back through their tweet history that this supposedly real person has quite detailed opinions about the Russian (laughs) involvement in Chechnya and uh, Ukraine, things like that. And then suddenly they've also had very strong views and very detailed views on the US election and the insurrection in the US. And then they've suddenly had very detailed views on Brexit and they've just moved from issue to issue while all the time being a hairdresser from Bolton or something (laughs) (laughs) who just cares about kids and having a laugh and also bot accounts, which are automated. So that's the bot accounts are often just used to amplify other things or just send standard replies when they see keywords and so on. So there's a lot of those kind of accounts. So you just want to mute those out and ignore those. So first I ignore anything that's got those six numbers after the name thing. But then I've got the Twitter settings to just 
ignore low quality stuff. So if there's abusive language or anything like that, it's all just filtered out before I see it. But then the other thing is when I'm scanning replies, I just very quickly scan. And if I see that they are just starting an uninformed rage war, I'll just ignore it. Don't give them the fuel because you replying amplifies them to all of your followers and so on. But yes, I did get informed by other people that it was starting a bit of a rage war among their followers. And apparently on the Daily Mail comments section under the article, they started discussing the thread that I'd started and me and having a go at me and being really aggressive there. And again, you've got to be the grown up. I just didn't go and look wasn't interested it's their small corner of the universe and what sad little lives they lead there that's such an interesting and clever way to respond to trolls and to silence the echo chamber take the oxygen away and then ask steve if he thought brands should do the same i think there has to be an element of that so you've got to quite carefully curate your feed we're in times where people are incredibly stressed i mean the normal life at the moment is so filled with anxiety and stress. So therefore, when people have a problem where there's a customer who's a genuine customer and is annoyed and they're not equipped with the emotional resources and resilience or the interpersonal skills to respond to a problem in a constructive way, they'll react angrily and emotionally. And so a brand has to identify where someone's reacting like that genuinely and figure out ways and have their staff trained to engage with those people on social media that just brings the temperature down and responds to them in a supportive way and with these kind of campaign bots and there is a hell of a wide distribution of these bad actors using social media to stoke tensions and anger and they just need to be ignored if there's no good intent wrapped in a bit of frustration just ignore them and i think that's the best way Okay, so we've heard an example where social media could be a place where there's division and conflict. But does this provide us with a complete picture of what social media actually is? In the final part of this conversation with Steve, and as I said, it, it really, it, we had a really good conversation. There's so much more. I wish I could include it all in the episode, but, but I just can't. But we end on a hopeful note in this piece where Steve shares a story where he used the weight of social, social media against itself, a little bit like a jujitsu master. Let's go take a listen. So as well as the Daily Mail experience, there was another time when I decided to start a Twitter thread and try and spread it for good reason. There was a, a local cafe that was a non-profit community enterprise where they were trying to ensure that everybody in the community could have a good breakfast, no matter how much they could afford or not. And so they started up the Egg Cafe and all they did was boiled eggs and toast. That was it. And then there was just a donation box and it was just pay what you can afford for your egg breakfast. And I thought this was fantastic. I just loved this. So I wanted to spread the word because the whole idea of this enterprise was not to other the people that go there so that it's not only a cafe for people who can't really afford to pay for a boiled egg and toast. So we want to spread the word wider within the community so that people would go who would be happy to pay you know, three or five quid for boiled eggs. So I started a Twitter thread. And sometimes when you see what's going on with a marketing thing or with a thing in the social world, you have to go with it. And so what you do is a karate move uh, or a judo move, I guess it would be, where you use the weight of this thing that's set up against it. 
And so when you know that you have to get an emotional response, you can do that to not make people angry and manipulate them, whatever, but to tell them a great story. So what I did, I genuinely paid 20 quid for a boiled egg. And then I sat there at the table eating my boiled egg and I tweeted about how fantastic this was, etc. But I started it off with something like, you'll never believe this, but I just paid £20 for boiled egg and soldiers in London. <laughs> and of course, people get straight to that, what? <laughs> and then they read the rest and then they got into it. And then I gradually revealed the whole community story and people at the end were going, oh my God, that's an amazing story. That's so lovely. And they were looking for where they could send donations and they were going to go along to the cafe themselves. By the end of that day, TV crews had gone there, including a German TV crew. <laughs> it, people had just wow. descended. This cafe had blown up. The thread had got millions of engagements. And we also had got support for some other charities like the Magic Breakfast and so on, so that we're spreading this idea of let's feed children better in the morning, whatever they can afford. So the thing about social media, people react with an emotional level, can be used for good as well. And so we shouldn't just ignore that need that's out there, let's serve it with good. But one of the interesting things about that was you still did get the bots, you know, or the sock puppets or these bad actors who want to try and separate everyone and divide everyone, who would come in with real vitriol and anger about bloody communists and our lefties, etc., etc. <laughs> and again, you ignore the worst of those. But what was really interesting was because it was clearly a thread for good and it was a good story and so on, I ended up with this army of people. I had no idea who they were. One or two I knew, but there were some who were complete strangers to me, including some very famous people <laughs> who took it upon themselves to help police the thread. Wow. And so it was really interesting because it was for good, people engaged with it and famous actors, famous faces, famous chefs would get involved and tell people off who were getting out of line and not supporting the spirit of this and let's support the community, etc. And it just created this community. So again, it was like in a pub where someone had perhaps come in and asked for some charity donations or some good cause. And the guy in the pub who always starts to trying to have a fight, tried to lay into them. And others from the pub came and gently took him away and put him <laughs> outside. <laughs> and it was a really nice experience, that whole thing. And I still, it's three years now since I tweeted that at least and I still occasionally get people replying to it retweeting wow. it liking wow. it whatever so that really took off Wow. Thank you, Steve. I literally am so grateful for your wonderful insight and spending your time with us on Marketing Trek today. So thank you so much for your time. I know how valuable it is. This is just a reminder that you are listening to Marketing Trek powered by Selby Anderson. Now I am Dom Hawes. You can reach me on LinkedIn, search for Dom Hawes, Selby Anderson. I love connecting to new people. I just ask you, please don't try and sell to me until you know me. Next, I speak with Jeff Watt and Dafina Grapci-Penny from Green Target. Green Target is a London city-based communications consultancy. Uh, they have clients all over the world. Uh, they specialize in financial services and they offer like super high-grade consultancy and advice on reputation management and all the kind of things, funny enough, that we're talking about today. So I wanted to talk to them about their opinion on social media. And I started off by asking Jeff if there were any real life examples he could think of, of how fast reputational damage can spread through a brand. Now, I must tell you, I recorded this interview originally around a year ago, and I was going to use it for something else. But I just love the content so much that we've, we've brought it into this show. Jeff, tell us. They 
have been slower than perhaps their consumer facing peers to respond to and manage and engage with channels like that. But there are lots of examples that we have seen more recently where uh, reputational damage appears very, very quickly and spreads very quickly on social media channels. Savills is a very good example of that. Post the Euro 2020 football tournament, we saw one of their employees reposting racially inflammatory language that was picked up. And before any consideration of what the legal position might be, for example, with regards to that employee, social media was calling for that employee to be be thrown out unceremoniously immediately. So they were forced to respond to that quite rightly, but very, very quickly by what was going on in the echo chamber of the social media channels that were reporting on it. So in light of this, I wanted to know from Dufina what companies should do when bad news diffuses throughout a company, particularly in the echo chamber. How should companies monitor and get ahead of potentially fake news about them? Yes, monitoring is certainly a critical aspect of understanding the direction of the conversations and obviously understanding how many of the posts are original trusted sources versus bots. But also because social media gives you the anonymity, so it's very hard to get that information unless you actually spend hours and hours monitoring the behaviour of some of those individuals or accounts. And then, of course, there are increasingly subcultures within the different social media. So it's not just a question of monitoring the accounts, but also understanding their language and points of reference as well. That's a great point. But when does fake news become real opinion and how can you reduce its harm? Ideally, never, if you have the right advice. But if you ignore the fake news for too long, then the information gets reproduced at a very fast rate, which means that then to actually go back to the truth takes a lot more effort. And as we know, people have a very short attention span. So if they see something appear on Google or on YouTube, then they will just assume that it's the truth. So one thing that we do a lot for our clients is really identify those sources of misinformation very early on and act very quickly and promptly, regardless of whether it's considered to be a reputable source in our eyes or not. So even if it's an obscure blog or a publication that we wouldn't consider to be a a tier one or relevant to our clients, we would still take action very early on to make sure that that information gets corrected and then doesn't get reproduced elsewhere. So for example, if we have a crisis or we're working in the crisis as we did earlier this year, it was a crisis which was global in nature because it affected clients and users based all over the world and of course you know social media users contributing posts 24 hours a day so we had to set up in place a system whereby we'd not necessarily react but monitor the output from social media on an hourly basis and then report back because there is so much information out there that if you ignore it for 24 hours, then you just can't make any sense of the information that is out there and you'd find it even harder to identify what are the sources of information, who are the main people producing that information and you know how to then stop it from being redistributed elsewhere. Wow, so listening is still the best form of defence. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. There you go. I I wanted to find out from the experts what a brand should do when the shit hits the fan. 
and they find themselves right in the eye of a social media storm. And Daphina gives some really sage advice. I mean, it's very easy to be tempted to respond quickly and aggressively at the beginning of the crisis. But in our experience, they never blow over in 24 hours. So it's really important to almost like keep your powder dry, get, get as much information as possible, avoid any miscommunication, any mistakes and any fake news out there. So correct any misperceptions, but then keep the powder dry so that if the situation escalates, you're actually well equipped to deal with an evolving crisis. Next, Jeff and Dafina both share what they think brands can do to mitigate risk on social media. I think in terms of mitigating risk, it's very helpful if a client has spent time on their messaging, their narrative, their story, if that's clear, if that's concise, if that's well articulated, and that's been delivered using the channels that they might want to engage with, then that can help in neutralising potential crises or stories as they arise. Transparency is probably another thing that say is worth mentioning. So businesses that are perceived to be transparent in good times outside of crisis certainly do better during crisis because there's a degree of trust that's been established there. But obviously, it's very hard if a company is maybe privately owned and they don't have to necessarily be as transparent. What happens when all of a sudden, because of their lack of transparency, not because the company is culturally <laughs> against transparency, but simply because they don't have to disclose things because they're not a listed company, all of a sudden there isn't a huge amount of information about them out there. And so it does breed speculation as well. So that's something worth bearing in mind as well. We have companies, for example, among our clients who are unlisted, but who voluntarily report their financial results every half a year, even if they don't have to, because that gives the market a degree of transparency. And that's certainly helped them when we've seen crisis in the past. I think the point around transparency is very interesting as well, because the other part of that is consistency. A company reporting good news when it suits them to report good news is not great in the sense that if they're not doing it all the time, if they're not transparent, if they're not being honest when the news is not so good, when they try and push good news out there, that will be received potentially negatively or just be ignored. That's an excellent point, actually. Transparency goes both ways. And a brand that takes responsibility for its mistakes actually does have more credibility when it wants to spread positive news too. So as my final question in this particular conversation, I wanted to get Jeff and Dafina's take on whitewashing. Dafina shares some very insightful information about the vigilance of social media users and why it's really important to practice what you preach. Now, now we're seeing new companies emerge that are actually using AI and machine learning to monitor, for example, what companies are communicating in terms of ESG. So they're looking at Google pages, they're looking at company websites, they're looking at news sources, and then they're comparing that against actually the output from those companies. And so I think we will see that increasingly happen in the future. And so the best way for the company to get ahead of it to really undertake an audit of their communications when it comes to ESG, see whether it actually matches the reality, and if not, what are the steps that they need to do to make sure that they can communicate their results better and really use data as much as possible fact-based data to really counter any issues on social media around ESG. One of the dangers for companies who are very vocal around issues to do with ESG or corporate social responsibility is they're very open to scrutiny. There's much more awareness from externally about whether companies are genuinely doing the things they might say they're doing. And in response to 
that greater transparency, that greater sight or oversight of companies, there are lots more channels for people. We've talked about social media channels, digital channels, where people can very quickly scrutinise and then complain. So companies that are not living the reality of what they're talking about are going to be in big trouble. Thank you, Jeff and Dafina, for sharing like a really excellent conversation and for spending so much time with me. Very valuable to us. And uh, and I know, again, I always say this about our guests, but you're all super busy. So I really appreciate you coming to see me in the studio. Thank you. Now, my final guest on the podcast today is Andy Sutherland. He's a super senior marketing and communications consultant. He's had a really, truly impressive career. And he's worked with so many iconic brands and companies. We were really lucky to book him to come and talk to us on the show. So let's start by getting a little bit of background uh, on Andy in his own words. I'm Andy Sutherden, the marketing and communications consultant and have been for 30 years and counting. So historically, I'm exclusively done from the world of agency and have worked across a whole host of sectors from airline to F&B to financial services. So I worked on the Gillette business for 17 years, worked for HSBC for 12 years, worked for Duracell, worked for Carling, led their marketing of the Premier League when that was born. So a real range of categories, actually, which gives you different perspectives on the subjects of reputation. I was privileged to be part of the London 2012 bid team and then the organization organizing committee team. So again, just at every junction, you have reputational matters to deal with. First, I wanted to know if Andy thought it was an exaggeration that social media can make or break businesses in the modern era. I don't think you're exaggerating. I think you're shining a light on one end of the scale, which is entirely reasonable because that's the end of the scale that gets the most attention. The trolls, the inflammatory headlines, abuse and conflict tends to make headlines and it magnetizes interest. The human psyche is that they're drawn more towards conflict than peace. I think that's just a human trait that most cultures around the world carry and that's therefore what we get to see more. But there are obviously many, many benefits of social media, but at its worst, yes, it can bring down companies and in some of the most horrific instances, end lives. Oh God, that's a very sobering thought, Andy. Next, Andy shares a story that highlights the fragility of reputation. Do you know it was 30 years ago that Gerald Ratner stood up and said that his jewellery was crap? 1991 that was. And here was a guy who was sat on top of a very, very lucrative business, a company that was moving into the empire stakes. And he just stood up at the Institute of Directors and described his I think it was a set of earrings that was cheaper than an M&S sandwich and the sandwich would probably last longer. And an infamous quote, which going back 30 years is all caught up in this theory of reputation and the importance of getting one, a good one to begin with, and then keeping it. I think the expression is reputation arrives by foot and leaves by train. (laughs) It takes a long time to get a great reputation and seconds to lose it. And Gerald Ratner in a nanosecond Bespurts his own business, and that was the end of Ratner's, the jewellery chain. And it's interesting that all of that was pre-social media. You wonder what on earth would have become of him and that business if the live audience were almost in real time transcribing his words. In the next part of our conversation, Andy touched on a subject I'm really interested in. He identified how and why a good external reputation always starts from within. 
Most people assume that reputations need to be managed outside of the corporate walls of a business. And I have this inside out theory that a good reputation starts from within and it resonates outward. A great reputation is really amplified when you see the staff of an organization loving every moment of being a member of that company. And having a a loyal, motivated staff is absolutely a performance metric these days. And it is of no surprise that a poor reputation of an organization normally starts from a disgruntled staff. I think the subject of reputation management and the relationship between having a good reputation and employee engagement is a subject not as explored as I would like in the industry, actually. And there is a tremendous correlation between good reputation and motivated staff. One symptom of strong culture is the presence of positive gossip, as I call it. And staff that bemoan are people that carry that angst outside of their business, especially with the proliferation of social media, because people rarely create the difference between their commentary at work and their commentary outside of work. So... I think staff are one of the most important groups of people that define and carry corporate reputation. Andy talks to me about Marcus Rashford's extraordinary campaign and how his authenticity, coupled with the power of social media, brought real positive change. I think this next section really echoes what Jeff and Dafina said earlier about practicing what you preach. Take a listen. The high profile stage of sport has meant that these matters, societal matters, always surface around high-profile events, sporting or otherwise, but sport seems to be the stage upon which things way beyond the 90 minutes are amplified because they draw big crowds, diverse crowds, an Olympic audience, a FIFA World Cup audience, a UEFA Champions League audience. Yes, they're football fans, they're fans of Olympic sport, but these moments attract most corners of society and therefore they become high profile stages for NGOs. Greenpeace have used the UEFA Champions League game to make a point by parachuting people in. But I will say this about sport, that it's most powerful when the individual or the organisation come at it from a very credible and authentic place. And it seems very cliche now to talk about the importance of authenticity, but you know that the Marcus Rashford case around school meals was as powerful as it was because that's where he came from. And he spoke in the first person, he spoke from experience, and I think the audience really related to that and forgot that he could buy many meals for himself and a crowd of others around him given his wealth now as a footballer. But there was a humility in his storytelling and his ability to rewind the clock to the time when his family couldn't afford school meals. It really struck a chord. And it's at that junction that he went from footballer to societal role model. And he used his presence and fame and stage to make a political point that moved governments. And a lot of the accelerated commentary around that was courtesy of social media. So when we decry trolls and all of the ills of social media, you know that it was the momentum that he got behind that campaign, courtesy of social media, that started to move ministers to make policy decisions. And there he is a number of weeks and months later as GQ Man of the Year. And it is of no surprise that the world of sport seems to attract these individuals that want to use their fame and attention to make 
very powerful social statements. Black Lives Matters. The issue, of course, now, and I was listening to this commentary around the England-Hungary game the other evening, that the taking of the knee needs to be much more than a physical symbol, that it's actually the actions that rest behind these very powerful visual moments. And I think the subject of reputation is all to do with the action, less about the words and the transcript and the very well-orchestrated words that companies and individuals can use that feel vacuous without action that fast follows. So reputational risk really comes when the actions don't quite marry with the words. And Black Lives Matter and taking the knee, especially in Black History Month, is a moment that that movement has described the importance of meaningful action that will lead to sustainable societal change, rather than us using a luggage of words and jargon that make people feel good in the moment. And this is where I think reputational risk lies with many companies, where their brochure and their website and their CEO in the town hall speaks in a very sincere and compelling way about their vision and what they stand for in the world. Yet their actions somehow don't marry the words. And the consuming public now who are infinitely smart, they see the daylight between those two things and they vote with their wallet, with their feet. So the company that really cherishes their own reputation is the company that not only talks a good game, but genuinely delivers on its promise. Lastly, Andy talks about the importance of reputation and puts forward a compelling case for why the reputation manager should be the fifth person around the board table, alongside the lawyer, the financier, the people and the sales and marketing teams. Does communications and reputation always sit around the board table? Because it strikes me that when I'm asked about reputation and the importance of enhancing a reputation, keeping good reputation, or more often than not in the industry, the PR company that you've spoken to, my job historically, it does aggravate me that sometimes the blue light that arrives when reputation has been damaged or it's in tatters and you're there to fix. I'd much rather be an expert that elevates the importance of getting and keeping a good reputation rather than waiting for something horrible to go wrong and then trying to fix it. So the question that I ask myself is, are more companies, the chairman and the CEO of companies, more compelled now to have communications sat around the board table? Because if you think about it, where does communications report up through an organization, normally through sales and marketing? It normally sits in the marketing division. And I don't know how many more instances of corporate reputation going south there has to be for CEOs to realize that it needs to be represented at board level, that the preservation of good corporate reputation is fundamental to good corporate governance and ultimately company performance. So why should it report up through another function that is frankly quite busy and experts in its own right. I had a colleague who described it brilliantly as communication should be the fifth seat around the modern day boardroom, that you've got the lawyer, of course, you've got the finance director, of course, the HR person, you have sales and marketing. And then when something goes wrong and the public set about social media and you see your share price tank and people start to leave the business and your reputation is in tatters, 
then where is the communications person? And should that communications person not be occupying what is potentially defined now as the fifth seat that is currently absent? So the creation of that role and elevating its importance in sustainable corporate futures is a trend that I think more and more companies are going to embrace. So I really hope that, especially in the accelerated presence of social media and its ability to be a barometer and arbiter of corporate reputation, that communications enjoys a fifth seat around the boardroom table alongside the lawyer, the finance director, the HR director and sales and marketing. Wow, that was a fascinating episode. Thank you, Steve, Jeff, Dafina and Andy for spending time and coming talking to us on Marketing Trek. So what do we have to take away from today's episode? Well, from our conversation with Andy, I think what really hit home is that reputation management and accountability is only ever going to become more important. Social media's ability to put you directly in front of your consumers not only allows you to communicate with them at all times, but it allows them to do the same with you. That's why most important, best successful brands and companies have structures in place and they properly respect the power of communications. So I think Andy's prediction is becoming the fifth seat at the board table. That's pretty important. Following that, having those structures in place to respond to controversy or get ahead of fake news, well, that, that's going to allow companies to reduce the harm that miscommunication can cause between a brand and its stakeholders. Customers, clients, consumers, whatever you call yours, they can all see through disingenuous practices. And as Jeff and Dafina asserted, silence speaks volumes. So talk to your customers and practice what you preach. When you build trust with your customers, they'll listen to you when misinformation strikes. My final point, I think probably is the most important one. As much as social media can feel like a conduit for negativity, it can also be a positive instrument for change. I think both of the anecdotes Andy shared highlight this. You know, social media has immense weight. It's big. And if it falls on you, it can literally be crushing. But you can use that weight to your advantage. So it can be a massive force for good. Next week on the show, I speak to Carla Wentworth from Vantage Clever and Francesca Goldsmith from Salesforce about the fascinating world of MOPS or marketing operations. In the episode, we explore how companies can get the most out of their data. I get an insight into why integration is key when employing new tech and we discuss some of the best new technologies out there right now so you can improve your marketing operations and make best use of tech in your company. We'll see you there. I am deeply grateful to you for listening to this episode of Marketing Trek. I know your time is extraordinarily precious because mine is too, but I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would be very grateful if you would please subscribe on whatever your favorite channel is, but I'd be even more grateful if you'd write us a review. If you don't want to do that publicly, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Dom Hawes at Selby Anderson. Please send me a connection request and please send me a message and I would be delighted to receive feedback, both good and bad. This podcast was recorded at Terminal Studios. You can find that at terminalstudios.co.uk and the show was produced by Selby Anderson. You can find us at selbyanderson.com. Thank you.